Well, we are in the midst of a series entitled Letters to the Church. Letters to the Church. And we've taken the last couple of weeks and, and looked at some of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the early church. Uh, starting, uh, we started with Gal- uh, Galatians, we moved on to Ephesians, and now we are in... Philippians, because we're just systematically working through. I mentioned that Paul, of the 21 epistles, the 21 letters written in the New Testament, Paul wrote 13 of them. So he was a major contributor to, to the New Testament. And we understand this, that, that when Paul was writing these letters, he didn't, he didn't necessarily recognize that he was writing the Bible, he, he just was writing a letter. He was, he, there was a purpose behind it, and we'll talk about the purpose behind Philippians this morning. Uh, we talked about the, the purpose in Galatians. We talked about the purpose in Ephesians, Galatians being freedom. The, the purpose of the letter to, to the church in Ephesus was unity, the overarching purpose. And, and then today we're going to talk about the, the purpose and the, and the goal of his letter to the Philippian church. So Paul writes this letter, and, and unlike the other letters that he writes, Corinthians and Ephesians and, and, and Galatians, and a lot of those letters, the purpose behind those letters was to bring some kind of correction. Something, something had gone a little sideways in the church, and so Paul, as the apostle, as the leader of those churches, has to write and go, let me, let me help you out a little bit. Let me help you get, get you back on track. Philippians is a little bit different, though. Um, f- the Philippian uh, letter, the letter to the Philippian church, was a very personal letter. It was a letter that Paul wrote out of the overflow of things, this giving that he has in his heart for this group of people. And he has this love and this care for them. And, and I want to talk about that a little bit this morning, and then we'll draw some conclusions and some points uh, out of that. So let's talk about Philippi for a little bit. Where was Philippi? Philippi was a church located, or it was a city located uh, in what is now Greece. And you can see on the map right at the top, we have Thessalonica, uh, to, just to the left of it, to that, that, that peninsula coming out that is the nation of Greece. And so Philippi was right on the top of that bay. Over on the right, down on the bottom right, you see the, the city of Ephesus. Uh, and then right across from that is Athens. So Philippi is actually located in what is now called Europe. Whereas Ephesus was in Asia Minor, minor Philippi was the first church that was planted and started in the, uh, on the continent of Europe. And that region, by the way, is called Macedonia. So when you read in Scripture, you hear about the Macedonians. This is the region uh, that they would have been talking about. So it's, it's located in, in Greece, but it was a Roman city. Uh, it was located on a mountainside. Uh, beautiful, beautiful landscape. It is lo- located on this mountainside. And these mountains, uh, at one point, had a lot of gold in them right? There's gold in those there mountains. <laughs> and Rome had capitalized on that. They had mined the gold out of those mountains. Uh, by the way, Philippi was named uh, for Philip, who was the father of Alexander the Great uh, and, and was a leader in that area. 
So it was a wealthy city. It was a, a really important city for the Romans. It was located, again, right on the, on the trading route between the east and the west. And so there was a lot of movement that went back and forth. And not only was it a Roman city, it was a Roman colony. The difference being this, when, it, when a community was colonized or a region was colonized, it, it, was, it really became a part of the Roman Empire. It wasn't just occupied by them. And so the Roman customs were all the more important in that region and in that city. There was a mix, in fact, of Greek and Roman culture in the city. There was a Roman garrison that was stationed there to exert their dominance and their control over that area. And like I mentioned, it was like Ephesus, a center of trade and commerce. And so in the midst of this, this church is started. And there's some unique things about the church in Philippi. Uh, some really cool things, in fact. And you can read about uh, Paul and Silas and their encounter with the church in, in, uh, in Philippi in, in the book of Acts in chapter 16. I'm going to read a short, couple of short snippets uh, out of this. So, so when Paul would travel, it was on his second missionary journey that he goes to Philippi. Uh, in fact, he has a dream. And a Macedonian man in this dream invites him to come to Philippi. He has this dream. And he's, he's in the city of Troas, which is just north of Ephesus. And he's invited by a, a Macedonian man in this dream to come to Philippi. So him and Silas set sail and they go to Philippi. And their custom was this. Paul's custom was that he would come to a city and immediately the first place he would go to was the synagogue. And he would go and preach in the synagogue. Well, that doesn't happen in Philippi. And what scholars believe is that there was, uh, there was not a significant Jewish community in that city. Therefore, there wasn't a synagogue. And so what Paul and Silas do is they go to the outskirts of the city. There's a river flowing and there's a group of women who are gathered there. And this is where Paul and Silas begin to preach. And so I want to read to you out of Acts chapter 16, verses 14 through 15. It says this, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of our household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay with me at my house. And she persuaded us. And so Paul and Silas and their entourage go to Lydia's house. Uh, Lydia would have been a successful businesswoman. Uh, purple cloth was extremely rare and extremely expensive. And though she was from Thyatira, she had set up shop and she had moved into the city of Philippi. And so she had influence in the city. Uh, she wasn't necessarily wealthy, but she, was, she had a, a good business. She was making a good income probably had a significantly sized home, a home big enough to invite all of these people into her home. And it's in her home that the church in Philippi is established. And Lydia, in fact, becomes the leader of that church. And so we see in the, in the city of Philippi, one of the, the, the best examples of women in ministry leadership. This question about can women lead in the church? Absolutely. Absolutely, without a doubt. And we see here in the, in the example of Paul that he, he, he 
elevates and, and, and promotes Lydia into this position of leadership within the church. And then he addresses her again in the letter. He also speaks to two other women later on, uh, Iodia and, uh, and the, the other lady's name, I'm just going to butcher, Sintic, uh, maybe. <laughs> There's these two leaders that he speaks to who are part of the church there in Philippi. And he encourages them in their leadership and what they're doing. And so this is significant for that region. The first church in the Gentile world, uh, the first fully Gentile church, the first church in the European continent. And here we have a church that has been led by women. The other thing that's significant is that the second person who's referenced as a convert in this church is a Roman jailer. So you remember when Paul and Silas were in Philippi, uh, they got arrested and they were severely treated. They were beaten and flogged and then thrown in jail. There was a woman, or a young girl rather, that was following them around as they were in the city for, for not a long period of time that they were there. But this, this girl is following them around and she had, as scripture said, a spirit in her that uh, was calling out, this, these, these are messengers from the Lord, you need to listen. But she would use this, this spirit, this thing that, this gift that she had, if you will, to make money. In fact, she had people that uh, would put her to work for them and they, she was making money for them. And at one point, Paul had had enough and he turns around and he casts the spirit out of her and, and essentially frees her from this bondage. Well, her handlers, her bosses are not happy about this because they just took away, Paul just took away their means for making money. And so they're thrown into prison. They're beaten and flogged. And in prison, they have this encounter. We see this again in Acts 16, verse 26. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake. By the way, Paul and Silas are, are doing what at this point? Do you remember? They're singing. They've just gotten beaten. They've just gotten accused of doing something. They've been flogged. Now they're in prison, and they're in the inner part of the prison, and they're worshiping God. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and at once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. And the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sir, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And from here, they actually go and, and go to the, the Roman jailer's home and his entire household is saved. And so we see here in Philippi, this church is started and it is established with Lydia as the leader of the church and this Roman jailer. Two in that culture, for sure, to the most unlikely candidates to be the leaders of this thriving church. And so these are the people that Paul is connected to, and he loves them deeply. He loves them deeply, and he writes this letter to them while he's in prison. Most likely prison, imprisoned in Rome. That's what most scholars believe. There's some theories about where he might have been. But, but most scholars believe that he was in Rome in prison. And so he writes this letter to them, thanking them for their care and their support. And then providing some encouragement for them uh, in the church and in their faith. 
See, Paul in his missionary journeys was what they call itinerant. He was a tent maker. He would travel and he relied on the giving and the support of the places where he would preach. And so the churches would give towards his ministry. And, and, and uh, maybe you've heard the term tent maker, that he was a tent maker. He literally was a tent maker. That was his profession. That's what he did. So in different places, he would go to work to support. But the church in Philippi consistently supported him. In fact, of all the churches in the Macedonia, Macedonian region, they were the only ones to offer support, and, and it meant a lot. In fact, they would send people. Epaphroditus uh, is one of the men that they sent to take the, the gifts and the aid and the money and, and the clothing and the other things that Paul would have needed and sent Epaphroditus to Paul to go and minister to him and bring uh, these letters to him. So, let's talk about the theme of Philippians. The major theme of this letter is this, rejoice. Rejoice. The word joy or rejoice are used 16 times in the four chapters within this letter. That's a lot. You, you can read this, the entire book of Philippians in one sitting. It's not hard to get through the whole, the whole book. Four short chapters. And in those few chapters, he uses the word joy or rejoice 16 times times. One of the key passages in the book would be this, and in the letter would be this. Philippians 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is really at the core of Paul's message. Now remember, Paul is in prison. And as you read the letter, you start realizing Paul is aware of the fact that he might be drawing close to the end of his life. That, that things might be done for him. And he, he talks about, if I, if, I, if I die, I will be with Jesus, which is awesome. And if I, if I live, I'll, continuing, I'll be able to continue talking about Jesus, which is awesome. And he's like, quite frankly, I would prefer to be with Jesus. And so there's just this awareness that, that Paul's getting to the end of his life and ministry. And with that in mind, while he's in prison, while he's been wrongly accused and he's been moved from place to place, he says those words, rejoice in the Lord always. L rejoice. And let the joy of God be evident in your life. Let me ask you this morning, are you anxious about anything? Are you anxious about anything? I mean, Paul had a lot to be anxious about. He's aware of the fact that he might be dying pretty soon, that his life might be taken from him. He had things to be anxious about. And he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Paul had tied into something. He had tapped into something that changed his outlook. And it was rooted in joy. It was rooted in the joy of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I can sometimes lose sight of who I am. I can lose sight of who I am. 
And life can get a little foggy and life can get a little difficult. And I can start second guessing my decisions and I can start second guessing my identity. I think it happens to all of us from time to time. But there's a way back. I want to show you this clip real quick. It's a movie clip out of the, the, the movie Hook, the Peter Pan movie. Like, yeah, it's a good one. It was one of my favorite, favorite movie clips. It's not necessarily my favorite movie, but I love this scene. Remember, Peter leaves Neverland. He falls in love. He leaves Neverland. He gr grows up, grows old. And then he has to come back because these kids are kidnapped. And he doesn't remember who he is. And so there's a scene where the lost boys are examining Peter trying to discover if he's really Peter. Because remember, he doesn't look like the, the kid he once was. So let's take a look at this clip. pulls his face back and he sees that smile and he goes, oh, there you are. See, Peter had gotten really serious. He was a successful businessman and life was just about work and phone calls and busyness and success. And he lost his joy. He lost his smile. And that speaks so much to my heart and I hope it does to you as well because I think sometimes we lose our joy in following Jesus. And as followers of Christ, we get really serious. Life starts sneaking in and things happen and there's the weight and the pressure of, of life that surrounds us and there's things that we get anxious about and what tends to happen is the first thing that goes out of the window is our joy. I've met a lot of grumpy Christians. <laughs> and at times I've been a grumpy Christian and I tell you, that's an oxymoron. You can't be grumpy and be a follower of Jesus. And there's room for personality. But you know what I'm talking about? That there's something about knowing Jesus that changes our countenance, that changes our outlook, that changes our perspective. And when we lose sight of who Jesus is in our lives, we lose our joy. We stop rejoicing. Paul knew what it, meant, what it meant and what it was to rejoice. And so he writes this letter to the Philippian church. And he tells them how much he loves them. And then he has this caution for them. 
Don't lose sight of who Jesus is. Don't lose sight of who he is in your life because if you do, you will lose your joy. And so he keeps saying over and over and over again, he talks about his joy being made complete. He talks about rejoicing in the midst of suffering and in the midst of trials. And it's no different for us today that the joy of the Lord is our our strength. That means if we don't have the joy of the Lord, we're going to be weak. We're going to struggle. That everything we come up against is going to seem impossible. I have two points I want to make this morning, and we'll draw these from Scripture. I have a ton of verses. I, I thought, you know, I'm pretty close to like copying and pasting half of the book of Philippians into my notes today. I had to like scale back. Take time this week, by the way. Would you take time just to read the book of Philippians? Listen to it on your device. Listen to Paul's heart. Listen to the things that he says as he refocuses their attention on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So the first point is this, that we, ha- we need to have joy in our faith. I think what we want to do sometimes is go, Lord, help me to rejoice in my trouble. And we'll talk about that in a second because that's my second point. But we can't start there. See, Jesus isn't just the answer to my troubles. He isn't just the answer in in the midst of trials. He's the answer, period. He's the answer for everything. And so we need to have joy in our faith. He writes in Philippians 4, the Lord is near. That's good news. See, before Jesus came and before he died on the cross, God was not near. He couldn't be near. It was dangerous for us to have God near. But because of the work of Jesus, Paul now says, the Lord is near. Jesus is close to you. He is present in your life. We, we sang about this morning that we get to go boldly, that we can go into the throne room, that we can stand in the presence and the majesty of God, the Lord is near. He writes in, uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Paul knows that he has an influence in the lives of these people, but his goal is not for them to talk about Paul. His goal is for them to boast about Jesus. Let me ask you this question this morning. Does your boasting in Christ Jesus abound? How much do you talk about what Jesus has done for you? How much do you think about what Jesus has done for you? How much do you meditate on what Jesus has done for you? How much do you celebrate what Jesus has done for you? I remember hearing a comedian a, a few years ago. He was one, on one of the late night shows. I don't even remember what his name was and really don't care. I just remember that the joke was, was really good. He says, you know, it's amazing. We live in this day and age where we take things for granted, like flying on an airplane, Right, And so he's sharing this story. He goes, it was like right when Wi-Fi started becoming available on airplanes. 
and he's sitting next to this guy, and they're like, hey, we have Wi-Fi on this plane today. You can connect your devices, and they're flying coast to coast, and like an hour into the flight, the Wi-Fi went down, and this dude next to him starts complaining. I can't believe it. This is so ridiculous. How do they have this thing? And it doesn't even work. And the comedian's going, dude, you're in a metal tube flying through the air. <laughs> that a journey that takes you five hours used to take people three months and half the people you left with didn't arrive because they died <laughs> along the way. And you're complaining He's like, you should be on that plane every time going, oh my gosh, I'm in the air. This is amazing. We're flying. And just constantly, so incredible how we can take things that are phenomenal and amazing and mind-blowing, and they just become the norm, and they become old, and they become boring, and then we start complaining and griping, right? Anyone relate to this in regard to internet speed? You're like, oh my gosh, 400 megs is so slow. I, a lot of you remember dial-up, right? You're like waiting for that picture to load, and it's like just a little bit at a time. When it comes to our relationship with Jesus, our posture every moment of every day should be, I can't believe what God has done. That we would wake up singing his praises going, Jesus has saved me. He has redeemed me. He has restored me. He loves me. This is phenomenal. This is, I, I can't believe it. Every morning, every second of every day, recalling all the things that God has done for us. But it's so easy to lose sight of the joy of our salvation and the object of the joy of our salvation. And so what do we do? We grumble and we complain. Am I right? About what? About pretty much anything. We grumble and we complain. If it's inconvenient for me, if it doesn't match, meet my needs, and if I don't think that God is coming through or the church is coming through or whatever, fill in the blank. We grumble and we complain. But let me tell you, you're no different. So did the church in Philippi, which is why Paul writes in, second, in Philippians 2.14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. And I'm pretty sure by everything he means... Everything, everything, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Okay, now think about that verse and think about your home. Think about your marriage. Think about how things went this morning. I get things happen in our lives, but I think we can adopt a posture in our lives as Christians where we feel entitled. We feel entitled to our grumbling and our complaining. And Paul says, no, if you keep your eyes on Jesus, if the joy in your faith is present, if you remember what you have received, man, your countenance will change. The joy will be there. You will be able to rejoice in no matter what you face. So it's all about keeping our eyes on Jesus. Philippians 1, 3 through 6. I thank my God 
every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with, pray, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Such a good verse. Such a good passage. Paul, I, I love you guys. I love what God is doing and I pray with joy when I remember your partnership and what God is doing in your life. And, and by the way, don't forget that God began this incredible work in you. And, and furthermore, don't forget that he started the work, but he said he will also complete the work. So rejoice. You ever feel stuck in your faith? Do you ever feel like, Lord, I, I don't feel like I'm growing? God, I, I feel like I just, I'm not getting it right. God, I don't know the right things to do. Or I just, why do I keep making mistakes? God, there's no way you can be pleased with me. There's no way that, that you can love me because I'm, I'm a wreck. I'm a mess. And Paul says, no, no, no. The one who started the work will be faithful to complete it. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. See, God's not going to drop the ball. He's not going to forget about you. He's not so busy that he's like, oh, yeah, that's right. I need to take care of that person. They have that need. And, you know, that I'll get to that, that, that prayer that's on my answering machine, my voicemail. I haven't got there yet. God doesn't drop the ball. He is near. He's present in your life and he knows what's going on. Furthermore, his, his grace is sufficient and his love knows no limits. Paul writes in Romans that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And by nothing he means nothing, including you. Let me stop there for a minute. Do you know that you can't separate yourself from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? You just can't. It's not possible that he loves you, period. And that should give you some level of joy. I hope it does. I hope it does. I, I, I am and you are. We walk in places where we're convicted by the Holy Spirit of our sin. And that's good. It's appropriate, but his goal is never to rob us of our joy. That's the other guy. That's Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But God's goal is never to rob us of our joy. In fact, he lavishes his love on us so that we know that we are loved and accepted, and that should give us all that joy. He goes on to say in Philippians 3.1, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. So Paul's saying here, hey, I, I, I'm saying the same thing over and over and over and over again. And I'm okay with it. I haven't lost my mind. I'm not forgetful. I'm saying the same thing over and over and over and over again because it's worth saying because it's worth remembering. Why? Because it becomes a safeguard to you. Why would you need a safeguard? Right? If you're driving up Glendora Mountain Road, those places where there's a big old cliff, what, what's on the side of the road? There's guardrails, safeguards. 
And Paul's saying, listen, I'm saying these things to you because there's this propensity for us to go over the edge and believe the lies of the enemy. And so he's saying, if I would say these things to you, I'm saying them as a safeguard, as a guardrail to remind you of who you are, to keep you on track, that you would keep coming back to, this is who God is, this is what he has done for me, this is the work of Jesus in my life, and that there would be this joy that would just bubble up from within. I think we spend a lot of time waiting God just for God to do stuff for us, and we forget that God has already done everything for us. We need guardrails in our faith so that our joy would be restored. And finally, in Philippians 3.8, he says, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. I like the translations that say rubbish that I may gain Christ. This, this is the key to Paul's joy, to his faith. Hey, I don't care if I lose everything. I want to know Jesus. I want him to be the first and only thing in my life. I will get rid of everything that entangles, everything that holds me back. And in fact, remember, he's in prison He's been stripped. He's been beaten. Everything is taken away from him. He is, he is dependent on other people for his support, for his income. He even asked them, I, I need a coat. Would someone send me a coat? And he goes, I'll do it all over again because it's worth it. Because I know Jesus. This is the greatest thing in life. This is the key behind Paul's joy. Consider everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Paul's eyes were fixed on Jesus, and because his eyes were fixed on Jesus, his joy was overflowing. By the way, he says to, in another part of the, the, the letter, he goes, hey, I'm in jail, and, uh, and I just want you to know that I'm, I'm in this place, but it's been amazing because I'm sharing my faith. And so most of the guards and most of the people that run this facility have given their lives to the Lord. And he's sharing just this testimony. Hey, it doesn't matter where I go, I'm going to speak about the things of the Lord. A great reminder for us. Sometimes we, will, we go, you know, I'll share my faith in the places where there's the least resistance. Where it's the easiest. And Paul's example is, no, share your faith in the places where it's the darkest, where it's the hardest, because I'll tell you this, it's the place where people are most desperate. All right, second point is this, that we have joy in our trials. There's a lot more, by the way, in the letter. Um, we just have time constraints. So we're going to just cover two. Joy in the trials, Philippians 2, 17 through 18. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, let me interpret that, I'm about to die. My life is being poured out. I am being dispensed. 
even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Hey, I'm in this circumstance. I don't think any of us would say, hey, I'm in jail and I'm about to die and things are going great. I'm going to rejoice. But Paul had given his life for the sake of the gospel. He had been faithful to, the, to God's call on his life. And so in this dark circumstance, he's confident and able to say, you know what? My life has mattered and counted for the kingdom of God. And because of who Jesus is, I can face this trial with rejoicing. And he invites them into the rejoicing. It doesn't tell, tell them, hey, pray for me because it's really tough in here and just pray that the burdens would ease up. He just says, hey, would you rejoice with me in my suffering? And I rejoice with you because you, you've supported me and you've been a blessing to me. But let's rejoice. Let's rejoice in the midst of suffering. In 127, he says, whatever happens, say whatever happens. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you, will, you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Hey, church, whatever happens in your life, Whatever trials you face, whatever happens to me, whatever happens to you, whatever happens in the world around us, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how gloomy it is, no matter how depressing it is, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Wow. So Paul's referencing back to my first point. It's all about Jesus. But he's saying, listen, if you, want to, if you want to see joy, if you want to rejoice in the midst of your trials, remember this, you are first and foremost a representative of Jesus Christ and of his kingdom. You are a representative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that when you're tempted to behave a certain way, that you would stop and go, hmm, am I representing the gospel well? Am I representing Jesus well in the way that I'm responding, in the way that I'm talking, in the way that I'm thinking about the things that I'm doing? So Paul, in the midst of his struggle, in the midst of his trial, just remembers this. I am a representative of the gospel, which, by the way, is why everywhere he went, the people around him would give their lives to Jesus. Remember the, the jailer right here in Philippi, who would have been reading this letter. They estimate that the letter was written about 10 years after Paul and Silas were in the city of Philippi. So there, it's, it's highly probable that that Roman jailer would have st still been part of this congregation. And he would have been able to go, yeah, that's Paul. In fact, I'm here today because when Paul and Silas were, in, were jailed and, and got beaten, their response was worshiping and singing. And God did a mighty work, and I'm here today because of that. So whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
What if we became so gospel focused and Jesus focused and kingdom of God focused that the trials that we walked through actually became opportunities for his name to be made famous in the world? Let that sink in for a second. You know that throughout history, that the church has grown more in the midst of opposition and persecution than it has when we have enjoyed freedom and comfort. And that is true to this day. The nations where the gospel is opposed with violence, there is an explosion of growth in the church of Jesus Christ. And in the places like in our nation where we are comfortable We let that die out. And then when suffering comes, we go back to the grumbling and complaining. Why, God, would you let this? And God's going, I'm trying to do something in your life. I care about you. But let your testimony about, you know what? I'm walking through this trial, but God is good. And the people around you will go, how can you say that? And then you get to answer that question. And in the midst of that, the gospel of Jesus is presented. Philippians 4, 4 through 7, and we read this again. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul just calls it out. Hey, I know you're going to face issues. I face issues. He, he talks about anxiety. You know, Paul talks about anxiety. He's like, hey, we need to make some decisions here so that my anxiety would be alleviated. Because they were people. And they had relationships just like we do. Hey, but don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, there's a lot of every and all and always in this letter. In every situation, come to God and let him know what's going on in your life. And by the way, when you do that, do it with thanksgiving. Why? Because you know that God cares. He is already moving on your behalf. We, we struggle with this one. I think we struggle with this one as a culture that we don't thank people before they give us something or do something for us. The thanks comes after. And only if I actually like what you did for me. <laughs> Come on, somebody. Come to God, present your request to him because you know he cares about you. You know what he's done for you. And, and in the midst of making your prayers and petitions, because you're free to do that, give thanks to God and say, God, thank you for what you've already done and for what you're doing. And the fact that you've already answered my prayer before I even prayed the prayer. So with thanksgiving, and then he says, out of that, there will be this peace that wells up inside of you, and, and it's not going to make sense. You will have a peace in the midst of the circumstance, the trial, the suffering, 
And it's not going to make sense. It's not going to make sense to you. It's not going to make sense to the people around you. That's the, that's the transcending all understanding. I think sometimes we read transcend all understanding and it sounds so, well, flowery and wordy and big. He's just saying, listen, there's going to be stuff here. You're like, I don't know why I'm at such peace when, with all the stuff going around me, but I just am because of who God is. And then he will guard your heart. And what happens when God guards your heart, when Jesus guards your heart, he creates a place where joy can well up. Where joy can bubble up from your soul, from your innermost being as the spirit of God moves in you. And he guards our hearts and our minds. This is the care that God has for us and invite the worship team to come up. Philippians 4.13. I'll end with this verse. Because we like this verse. But remember Paul writes the letter in context. It's a complete thought. We like to take verses of scripture. And read them alone and miss the context. So Paul is saying keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't lose the joy of your faith. Be a good representative of the gospel, even in the midst of trials. And then he says this, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Let me ask you today, where are your eyes focused? Is Jesus at the center of everything in your life? Are you waking up every day going, Oh my gosh, I can't believe what God has done for me. (laughs) This is amazing. Are you going through your day going, can I just tell you what God has done in my life? And I know you're thinking like, I don't want to be awkward or weird. You know what? We don't have the luxury and the time to not tell people about what God is doing in our lives. We just don't. I want it to be awkward. Get a little bit awkward. Put yourself out there a little bit. Why don't you be rejected? It doesn't matter. God's accepted you. You can be more accepted than you already are. So put yourself out there. God, this is what you've done for me. And I just want to shout it from the rooftops. And as I do that joy, because I tell you what, when you tell people this is what God has done for me, there's a difference between going, well, let me tell you what God has done in my life. Wow, okay. That the Holy Spirit would grab our faces. Right? And go, oh, there you are. Let's close as we stand. Father God, thank you. Let's stand together. Father God, Jesus, I want to speak to you. Jesus, thank you for what you have done. Can we just give praise to Jesus right now? God, we honor you in this place. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Jesus, we love what you have done for us. The way that you have moved on our behalf, that that we can have joy, absolute joy, in knowing who we are and who we belong to. And so, Lord, I pray, just as Paul did, that the peace of God would guard our hearts and mind in Christ Jesus.
that no matter what we're walking through, no matter what circumstance we're facing, no matter what's happened in the past, and no matter what we're worried about in the future, that we would remember that we can have joy and joy abundantly, that we can rejoice because of you. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.